Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we are turning now to the study and hearing of your word. I pray that you would give us hearts and minds able to receive what you would have for us. I pray that it would bear a fruit in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through our time this morning. In your name, amen. Well, I uh, hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's Eve celebration. Um, from how many people are here this morning, I guess things didn't get too wild last night, so that's good. So as Saul uh, mentioned earlier, we are getting ready to do our solemn assembly here at the church. And so this morning, I wanted to kick that time off by talking a little bit about what this is, why we do it, and what to expect. So I know for some of you, this will be your first time Uh, going through this with us as a church. And so I wanted to uh, do a little bit of a a teaching, I guess, on why we practice solemn assembly. Uh, It's because there's some biblical roots to this practice. Uh, The practice comes out of Old Testament where you read about the solemn assembly. But what we do is, is quite a bit different than that. So what I'd like to do today is talk a little bit about what are the Old Testament roots of solemn assembly But I want to spend quite a bit of time looking at one particular instance where it was practiced. Because in that time, I think there is a lot there to see about how do God's people corporately pursue God together. And that's what I want to look at is how, what is the pattern of how do God's people seek after him? Because that ultimately is what we are hoping to do with our solemn assembly is corporately take time to devote time to seek him. And part of that is going to be corporate. So we are going to have, for instance, the prayer meetings that take place on Monday through Thursday. We're going to have the concert of prayer on Friday. But there's also an aspect of solemn assembly where we are asking you as individuals to consider how can you devote additional time for study, prayer, fasting in the coming week to really orient your heart towards the pursuit of God in 2023. So that's the plan for today. We're going to look at a little bit of the Old Testament roots of solemn assembly and then look at one particular instance of when it was practiced out of Nehemiah 8. So in the law, we see the Old Testament law, there's kind of two times when solemn assembly was told they needed to do it. One was after the Feast of Passover and the other was after the Feast of Tabernacles. So these were two of the annual feasts that they would have and they would end with this time of solemn assembly. And there's actually not a lot specified in the law about what you were supposed to do during a solemn assembly. But two things we do see is that it was a Sabbath, so there was a, they were not supposed to work. And at least during the Feast of Tabernacles, they were all supposed to bring an offering of food. So it was a time of rest, of worship, and a time of congregational gathering. They would come together for for worship and to end this time of feasting and remembrance. Uh, We also see in the Old Testament that there were some other times where some of the prophets called Israel to come into a time of solemn assembly. So in Joel 1.14 and 2.15 through 16, we see the prophet Joel say, you guys need to have a solemn assembly. 
And the reason was is because they were getting ready to face a time of judgment. They had turned away from God. And Joel says, you all need to set aside a time to come together as a congregation to repent and to turn back to God. So there we see that, again, it's a call to gather, a call to prayer, and a a call to repentance. So those are kind of where we see solemn assembly happening in the Old Testament. But there's one more I want to look at, and this is the one we're going to spend some more time on, which is Nehemiah 8. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and please turn there. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of setting the stage for what we're about to read. So some of you all know that Nehemiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible and favorite characters. I may have mentioned it before, but I love Nehemiah. And part of the reason I love Nehemiah is because there is this moment where they like go to the walls with a, like a, a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other because they think they might be getting attacked. And, and Nehemiah him, himself is sort of this cross between William Wallace and a structural engineer. And I just love that. Like, I think that's great. But I also love the story of Nehemiah because of what was happening at the time in Israel and, and the, the, there being this, this moment of, of restoration. So to set the stage, after the exile in Babylon... In the book of Ezra, we read about how the people of Israel were starting to be allowed to return to Jerusalem and to the surrounding area. And we also read in the book of Ezra about the rebuilding of the temple. So there is an extent to which restoration is kind of slowly happening after the exile. But Jerusalem itself is still in pretty bad shape, right? When the Babylonians had taken Jerusalem, they destroyed a lot of the city. And in particular, they broke down a lot of the walls that surrounded Jerusalem. And at the time, walls were your protection. They were in some ways what constituted your city. They were what made it a safe place to dwell compared to places outside the city. So this is a big deal. The story of Nehemiah is built around this idea of coming together to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, And in God's provision, Nehemiah is granted both permission and the materials to go to Jerusalem and to oversee the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot there that we won't go into there, but it is is a big deal. And God did something truly amazing in working that out. But most of chapters 1 through 7 tell the story of the rebuilding of the wall and the internal and the external opposition that came to that process. And there was a lot. There was issues internally with what was going on with the people. There was also lots of threats. There were people that did not want them rebuilding the walls, and that's why they had to sometimes go to work with a sword in hand. But in chapter 7, the wall is finally rebuilt. They get the job done. And you would think that, well, end of Nehemiah, right? But no, the book continues. And the reason is, is because... There is another layer to Nehemiah which goes beyond just the physical rebuilding of a wall. Right, the wall represents something. Yes, it represents the safety and the integrity of Jerusalem. But remember, Jerusalem itself is the symbol of the nation of Israel. And so this is not just about restoring a wall. It is about the ongoing restoration of God's people and of a returning of them to God. And in chapter 8, we have this, this kind of pivotal moment where the story moves from 
the external renovation of a wall to a more internal returning to God of God's people. So with that as a backdrop, I want to read a portion of chapter 8. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 3, 9 through 12, and 17 through 18. And I'll give you indications when I'm moving between those sections. So I'm going to begin in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Jumping down now to verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now on to verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So here at the beginning of chapter 8, we have the, the reading of the law. So the priest Ezra gets up, and he, he's up on a platform, and he brings out the law likely a section of what we would know as either Leviticus or Deuteronomy, and he begins to read to the people. Now, we didn't read this section, but there's a little more that goes on there because he actually has a representative from each of the tribes up there with him, and the Levites and some of the other leaders are out among the people helping the people understand what the law is saying. Now, this may not seem particularly striking to us because, you know, we're, we have our Bibles we can read every day, and we hear sermons on Sunday mornings. This was a big deal for the people who had been in exile. They are now possibly for the first time, or at least in a long time, they are hearing the word of God read to them. They're hearing the words of the law. And yes, the words of the law were things about how they were supposed to live, But if you go back and read sections of like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll also see there's a whole lot in there about what God had done, right? The stories of how God had brought them out of Egypt, had led them through the desert, had brought them into the promised land. Basically, the story of how God had saved them is included in the law. It's also the law was the terms of the covenant. This was basically the terms of agreement between God and his people about how they were supposed to live and what would happen if they obeyed or disobeyed the law. And this is what the people are hearing. 
I want to step back from this for just a second because I think there's something here that is important with regards to our solemn assembly. What they're doing here, right, you have a bunch of people who are basically stepping away from their work, stepping away from their families, whatever they needed to do in order to sit under the reading of God's word. And I think this is something that I I want to really encourage you in the coming week as you're practicing solemn assembly to be creating additional space in your life for this to happen. To create space to be getting into God's word, maybe more than you usually do. Because what we see here is this is going to be the catalyst for a lot of what God is getting ready to do in his people. So I just wanted to put a little asterisk there. We're going to return to that. But that's one of the things with regards to solemn assembly. One of the things that God's people do is that they create space to hear God's word. All right. So that's sort of that's what's going on. They're reading the law. Now, what's interesting about these first eight verses is it's almost kind of technical. It's just telling you what happened, but there's not a lot there about how are the people responding to this. Verses 9 through 12, we get to see that. And I think in some ways, verses 9 through 12 is one of the most pivotal moments in the book of Nehemiah. So we have seen one of these characteristics of God's people is that they are supposed to walk in obedience to the commands of God. And the people are hearing that through the reading of the law But how do they respond? Verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So imagine this scene for a second. Right, Ezra's up there. He's reading out of, I don't know, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. We're not entirely sure what he's reading. The, the, The leaders are out there helping them understand And people just start weeping. They start mourning. They start grieving as they are hearing the words of the law because they recognize that they were not following this. They recognize the extent to which they had broken covenant with God, how much perhaps their exile, everything, was a result of that. There is this brokenness that you see the Israelites enter into. And I think this is one of the characteristics of God's people, is that people who love God are broken and weep over sin. They are broken over their own sin. Now, I bring this up because there has been a very strong movement culturally to focus a lot on feeling good about ourselves and having a a positive self-image. And there are some good qualities to that. But kind of extremes of that can lead you to perhaps look with suspicion about actually mourning and weeping over areas where you have sinned. And so I wanted to make clear here, like, within the scriptures, it is right and good that we are grieved by our sin. And in fact, if we aren't, that likely means that our consciences have become hardened and that we no longer are feeling the weight of our sin, and that is in a place of great spiritual danger where we could wander away from God and not even really feel it or notice it. Like This is something that is characteristic of being the people of God, is that we are grieved by our sin, and this is something that we see happening here with the nation of Israel. As they're reading the word of God, they are grieved by their sin. 
the path of restoration for God's people when they have wandered from God has always been through the valley of grief over sin. And that's why as a part of our solemn assembly, as a part of our times of prayer, we are going to be having extended times of confession, times of thinking back on 2022 and and grieving over the ways where we have not loved God with our whole heart and not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We're going to spend time doing that because, because it's important to be that as a people of God, to be grieved over our sin. But what I love is that also right here in verses 9 through 12, you get another part of what it means to be the people of God, which is the experience of God's grace. The profound experience of God's grace. I love here that they tell them, verse 8 and 9, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Verse 10, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So let me explain what's going on here. So they're reading the law. The people are grieved and mourning because of their sin. But they also, as they're reading the law, realize that it's time for the Feast of Booths, according to the calendar. So this is actually a time when they are supposed to be joyfully celebrating. And they want to act in obedience to God. So their first act of obedience to God is to basically throw a big festival. I love that. Like, isn't that so like God that in this moment where, yes, there is grief and mourning over sin, which is appropriate, they get to have this experience of God's grace. And I think it's, it's really significant that it's the Feast of Booths. So if you know anything about the Feast of Booths, this was a time when they would go out and they would get branches and things and sticks and things like that. And they'd build these, these booths, these tents outside their homes. And essentially they'd camp for a week outside their homes. And this was supposed to be a kind of reenactment of when God brought them out of Egypt and they were living in the desert and then coming into the promised land. It was this remembrance. It was a remembrance of the salvation of God. And they had this entire week of sort of outdoor camping and feasting. And this is what God has for them as their first act of obedience to him is this experience of joy and a remembrance of his salvation of them. I love that. I love the way God's grace is on display in this. So much, and then Nehemiah has to tell the people, stop mourning, stop grieving, right? It's time, it's time to celebrate. And I love that he ends this, he tells them, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I think this points to something that, yes, it is right and good for us to be grieved over our sin, but ultimately, there's a reason Jesus came. For the cro- there's a reason he died on the cross. And it was that we might have forgiveness and experience joy. So there's two things here that I think are so very characteristic of God's people. That yes, we are broken about our sin, but we also experience God's grace and we, we have these the experience of God's salvation. The last thing that I love here that is, I think, also indicative of the people of God. It says here 
in verse 10. Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Do you notice that? That is a part of the celebration. What they would do is they would send food to those who didn't have it. Because there was this risk, right, that there would be this time of feasting, this time of celebration, so long as you had what you needed to celebrate it. Right? There was this possibility that those who were wealthy would be having lots of fun and those who were poor would not be able to participate in the Feast of the Lord. And so there is this provision made of as a part of this festival, they were supposed to be generous with one another, giving to one another and making sure that everyone could participate. And I think this is something that you see throughout the Old Testament, you see throughout the New Testament, that God's people are supposed to be concerned about the care of others and in particular care for those who are poor without. That is part of who we are, and you see it right here baked into this moment when God is turning his people back to him. Now, I do love this moment in Nehemiah 8 because it is this kind of pivotal turning point where you see God's people turning back to him. But it's definitely not the end. There's more than just Nehemiah 8, and it is a continual process of restoration. In fact, if you go into Nehemiah 9, uh, you're going to see that they have some more work to do with regards to they have mourned over their sin but haven't really addressed it head on. In, In chapter 9, they do that. They have to deal with some of the areas where they have not been walking according to God and and kind of work through that. But for us... I think here in in chapter 8, we have a couple of things that are characteristic of God's people that, for me, inform how we go about pursuing God together. And for that reason, inform how we go about our solemn assembly as a church. And I have them up on the the board there. So the one is looking back at God's faithfulness. A second is repenting of our sin. A third is celebrating how we have seen God's salvation, committing ourselves to walking forward in obedience to him and seeking God and how we should serve and witness to others. These are going to be the things in the coming week that we as a church are going to be focusing on in our times of prayer, in our times of worship. Um, But I'm also asking you all to consider focusing on these things in the midst of your individual times of pursuing God as well. I also have up there what are some of the activities that we are calling the church to during this uh, time of solemn assembly. And the first is to create space to hear from God through his word. So we've talked about that a little bit earlier of maybe making additional time to read his word. Second is to engage in extended times of personal and corporate prayer. So we've talked about that we're going to be having the nightly (laughs) prayer meetings and then the... the, uh, the service on Fridays, but also I would invite you to consider what are some times that you could have during the week to have more extended times of prayer. And the last is fasting. Now, we haven't talked a lot about that, and um, there's a whole sermon there, but kind of two things about why we call for fasting during this time of solemn assembly. The first is that it is a practice of humbling ourselves before God. Throughout the scriptures, you see that prayer and fasting are often joined together, and it's a way to um, kind of humble ourselves when we're seeking after God. 
The second, though, is just very practical. It helps facilitate the other two. Uh, you actually spend quite a bit of your time making food, eating food, and cleaning up after eating, right? Um, that's still the case, even with all of our modern conveniences. It is still a time-consuming thing that we do. And so fasting is, in part, a way to create space in your life for getting into his word and for additional prayer. And so something I would like for you all to consider doing would be fasting. That could look like fasting a meal. It could look like fasting for an entire day. It also could look like giving up something else that is going to create space in your life. Perhaps there is an activity that you like to do, but it's very time-consuming during your week. Maybe this is a week where you give that up in order to spend additional time in prayer and study of God's word. So this is the invitation I'd like to give you all. Um, I want to give you a couple minutes to consider your week ahead and to think through how would you like to, as an individual, uh, practice solemn assembly. Um, so I would like to give you a couple minutes to think through that, pray through that. If you have a notebook or a phone, take a couple notes about what you're going to do. And then at the end of that time, I will close this in prayer. So let's take a couple minutes of quiet. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, ultimately all of these things are a means to an end. And that end is that we desire to seek you. We desire to hear from you. We desire to walk more faithfully uh, in your ways. So Father, I lift up this time of solemn assembly that we are going to have this week. Pray that both individually and corporately, that you would meet with us. Um, I pray that, um, that, Lord, you would give us hearts that are willing to hear. Uh, and pray that you would give direction uh, for this year um, through this time of prayer and seeking after you. Lord, we love you and give you all the praise and the glory in your name. Amen.